Hey everyone, welcome back to the Banana Data Podcast, a podcast hosted by Data IQ, where we discuss the good, the great, and the ugly of AI in our bi-weekly episodes. I'm Chris. And I'm Corey. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, my name is Corey Straussman. I'm a community manager at Data IQ. Welcome to episode three of the Banana Data Podcast. Can you believe we're already at episode three? Episode three of season five. I think I'm going to need to go back and watch all the past episodes, binge watch. We are just flying by. So you just heard the voice of Christopher Peter Macris. He's our other co-host, CPM. You'll hear more from him in a minute. And we also have a special guest who we'll get to in a second. Like CPM said, if you want to catch up, now is the time. Please feel free to subscribe to the Banana Data Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're going to be talking about the rise of the citizen data scientist, which frankly sounds like a really good movie title, right, CPM? Yeah, you know what? And since it's around data science, we might have to start with the sequel, SQL, instead of the first. And playing the lead role in that sequel or the rise of citizen data science, we are thrilled to be joined by Matt Doros. Matt, introduce yourself. Hey, yeah, I'm Matt, average data citizen. I'm a data analyst manager at Wayfair, and I run Google PLA ads there, which are the image-based ads under the search bar. Before that, I was a product manager, and before that, less of a citizen working in finance. Welcome, Matt, a citizen nonetheless. So, CPM, before we get into today's episode and chat with Matt, do you want to tell us what we covered last week? So last week, we continued talking about humanizing data. Specifically, we talked about creative intelligence and having empathy for uh, the user. So we talked about making big decisions like uh, purchasing a house and the emotional connection that comes to that type of purchase. Whereas data can tell you all about like how long somebody spent on a website, the clicks that they took, a human going in and humanizing that type of purchase and, and having that empathy for the, the user on that website actually tells a greater story. So yeah, we're, uh, I guess we're going to continue this conversation about humanizing data and bringing it to the masses via the citizen data scientists today. Yep. And we learned that creative intelligence tells us that data science isn't just science, it's art. So we're going to bring in a real artist today with Matt. So Matt, we want to kind of get the ball rolling here. So let's just start with a question, if you're up to it. Let's do it. So when looking at data, whatever the the data, you know, the numbers, the zeros, the ones, everything that's feeding in from your customer base, from the Wayfair website, how do you find insights via customer segmentation? Yeah, so when looking at those zeros and ones in the matrix, I really think there's two ways to approach finding insights, whether it's segmentation or some other lens. You can go top down and try and think of hypotheses that might fit the data and then see if those trends do exist in the data. Or you can go bottom up and think about the different streams of data you have available and filter through those and see what trends you can just observe by by looking at them. So I could dive in a little deeper with an example. One of the ways we've been segmenting at Wayfair Uh, We're a furniture and home goods company. So one of our big categories is nursery. Best time to sell someone nursery products is, of course, after they've had a child. So it's really valuable as marketers to know when someone's recently had a kid. We can look at what they're purchasing, what sort of behavior they have on site, and try and put together a profile of things that on average are going to be indicative of someone who's recently had a baby. 
So with that profile, you're more or less sort of building a human profile of what a potential customer might be like within their experience of using Wayfair. Yeah, exactly. Because if you've recently had a kid, we can really well predict what sort of things you're going to need. You're going to need a crib. You're going to need a mobile hanging above the bed. And by having a few of these different customer personas, they're really easy ways to help someone find what they need and in a predictive way where you're not just guessing the first thing, but also the second and third. So once you've got like this profile set up of of the type of user, you know, maybe they're a mom to be or a dad to be, how do you simplify this type of information and this type of data for the stakeholders or, you know, the leadership or the the different elements or the different uh, members of your team that may not be data scientists? What's that process like? Yeah, I guess it depends on what you're trying to convey. If you recently had some test that changed something, let's say about our ads, and you wanted to show off how this was working better, I guess there's a lot of avenues to tackle that. Hmm. Could we get a little more specific? So I think um, in a previous episode, we kind of talked about context and how context sort of matters in, in shaping the story. So, you know, you might have a profile of, of, of an individual who is going to be a parent-to-be but the context surrounding not only that they need to make purchases of, of, of a crib and, you know, baby clothes and things like that might help to lead the story. Yeah. So I guess when you're finding insights in the data, one of the key things is to leverage those insights as widely as you can. So if you've come up with this customer profile of people who are recently having had a kid, you're going to want to think about all the different ways you can use that, whether that's with email and customizing the content that you're serving to them. You could even have special articles saying, well, you're getting into dangerous territory saying, hey, congrats on the baby, but (laughs) you could gently nudge them towards those nursery products and trying to have systems that let you push that as widely as possible. You can extend that to search, which is my expertise right now, where you're able to bid up more highly on certain people's ads based on what they're searching for. So finding those extensions to leverage those insights is really important. So CPM just asked about stakeholders. So I think that's a good time to kind of talk about today's theme of the episode, the rise of the citizen data scientist. Matt, do you kind of want to tell us about your view on the citizen data scientist, whether you fit within there, like how you kind of view yourself as opposed to someone else who might have more traditional role or you might have more of a traditional background, just kind of tell us sort of your views on a citizen data scientist. Yeah. So I can give you context on where my role fits in the org and what I think makes that work well. So as a data analyst team, we're kind of the front line managing a few billion dollars of advertisements. So we have a lot of automation, keeping the system running, keeping our bids on the ads correct. But Every day, we're looking at the data, making sure things are running smoothly, and finding pockets of opportunity to optimize things. Longer term, we're also thinking about how our ads are structured, how they're written, the images we're using, and finding ways to drive longer term growth. So that's sort of our day to day. We have a host of data scientists and engineers supporting that operation. And as a citizen data scientist, we're kind of the front lines. We're really familiar with the product. And we're working with the people on Google's side and looking at the data to find those first insights, find those pockets, and develop a scrappy and quick solution that we can test, see if it works. And when things do work, 
we either double down on them with a V2 or pass them off to our data scientists team who we can work with to develop really state-of-the-art solutions to a problem like, say, bidding on ads. That's really awesome. It, it sounds like you, you're really close to the information and sort of providing, as you said, like a V1 or a V2 to pass to the data science team. I, I've heard that the definition of a citizen data scientist from uh, Alexander Linden, the Gartner Research VP, is someone who creates or generates these models using advanced diagnostics or analytics, but whose primary job or function is outside the field of statistics and analytics. So maybe there's some skeptics listening uh, on the podcast uh, about citizen data scientists. You know, you wouldn't necessarily want a citizen doctor. You know, if you go into the doctor's office and they say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not really primarily a doctor, but I know a little bit about, you know, being a doctor. I'm going to be operating on you today. What would you say to, to sort of that audience about, you know, being a citizen data scientist? Why is it sort of necessary to have you in the loop and, you know, performing these functions? Yeah, well, if you're in the operating room, Maybe even if you're not cutting into the patient, if you've got some medical background, you can still provide some value. And there's a lot more nurses than doctors. So we're able to run tests and find quick solutions that are still backed by data. If you've gone through statistics in college, you can still run a t-test. You can still have good analytical rigor, even if you're not at the level of creating some complicated ensemble model to solve this problem to infinity. So by taking that first approach and by getting results, we're really showing where the value is. And the data science team, having them in the loop, also helps make sure that we have the best possible methods. For a long time, we've been testing things with the, a simple t-test to figure out if we make some change on the ads, does it drive more growth? Well, we can get to a confidence interval using a t-test. But by working with our data scientists and having that feedback loop, they were able to give us some more advanced methods to use uh, bootstrapping to get a more advanced sampling of the data and a better read. So by having these two teams working together, you can stay quick and generate lots of insights while also keeping that statistical rigor up. That's interesting, Matt. It seems with the rise of the citizen data scientists, we're going to see an increase, or we are, we are already seeing an increase in terms of collaboration. If Forbes looked at what a perfect team would look like in this context, they talked about subject matter experts providing the context for advanced data analysis. They talked about citizen data scientists using ready-made tools to create more aha moments. And they talked about data scientists fulfilling the requirements of highly complex analysis and data modeling activities. Do you kind of want to speak to your perspective in regards to this type of collaboration and like what your experience is like at Wayfair? To some degree, it all comes down to iteration. You want to be able to do things quickly and eventually do them well, if it's worth the time. But you don't want to have to spend six months of data science resources figuring out something that doesn't ultimately work. So as someone with more limited data science chops than a bona fide data scientist, that limitation is actually sometimes an advantage because the things that I'm doing to figure out if something's valuable or not are going to be a lot simpler and probably a lot faster, well, faster anyways, than what a bona fide data science team might do. So by starting with the MVP, minimum viable product approach, and taking a slice, taking a sample, and getting the ball rolling, uh, you can have a process to make sure you're working on the most important things all the time. 
So a citizen data scientist might be doing those sort of routine tasks of like data cleaning, data munging, or maybe even having like the first basic research questions of interest and having answers to those, maybe passing those insights to the data science team and allowing them to either dig deeper or, you know, forego this topic for, you know, another topic. Is that right? Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, absolutely. We're chasing a million things at any particular juncture. And if we're not getting the results that we're hoping for, we'll pivot. We'll switch to something we think is more valuable. Matt, I want to touch on something you said before, which has really stuck with me. You talked about how in your role, you're really kind of on the front lines. I kind of thinking about it as like a traditional theater of war, for example, for lack of a better analogy. You're on the ground first. You're seeing raw data. You're seeing data performance. And you're the one who's making the first observation or the first insight. And then your role is to be able to communicate that up the chain so that the people who are in charge of doing more complex analysis and complex strategy can rely on that and be able to make a decision whether or not the the original plan of action is working and deciding whether or not to pivot. I'd be interested to learn about how you see those roles in your day-to-day work and kind of speak more to the collaboration and the mutual dependence of each other. Aiming for a low casualty theater of war. (laughs) Our our role as citizen data, data scientists is to really understand the business context and the business goals and keep things aligned towards maximizing them. Uh, and, and eventually data science can step into their role, which is with those objectives, coming up with really, really good solutions. So one example of this is with search ads, we're trying to target people to show them, well, to bid higher for products that we think they're really interested in and lower if we're less confident. So we had a bunch of different hypotheses for how we could improve our audience targeting. And as experts of our particular technical tools, we're pretty familiar with the uh, different ways that we can target people. Although I hope I don't get asked to define how pixels work on stream. So (laughs) we we were able to test quickly into a few different methods and set up a, a framework for what would be most valuable, where the data scientists can then step in and come up with a more complicated algorithm to sort our customers into those different segments. Well, you know, you stole my thunder here because I was going to ask you about how pixels work on screen, but I guess (laughs) I'll ask you a a little bit of a different question here. So when you come up with these solutions, it's all about using those solutions to deliver value. How do you deliver the right sort of value to the different stakeholders, whether they're technical versus non-technical? How how do you do that um, at Wayfair you know, with the way in which you communicate or speak to these different audiences in different ways? The biggest mantra that Wayfair defaults to is answer first communication. This is really the core to all business comms is to put the most important thing at the top and then cut out as much of the rest of the fat as you can. And this applies to writing. It also applies to verbal communication where I find it a lot harder. But if you're able to distill your message down to the key points and keep it structured, then you're going to be a lot better at talking to anybody. The second thing I bring up is knowing your audience, understanding who you're communicating to. You need to have a very different approach if you're talking to somebody more technical than you or less technical. If they're less technical, you want to abstract away all of the complication. Use metaphors if you can, and they're not going to be worried about the 
details of how you implemented something because they might not understand anyways. On the other hand, when you're talking to somebody more technical than you, you need to focus in on, at least as a citizen data scientist, the business side of things, the objectives, the goals, how it ties back to the broader story of what's happening. It's like giving that bottom line up front. I think I could be better about that in my day-to-day life, both in data science and otherwise. It's really hard. And sometimes if you're telling a story, you can just relax and tell a good story. But when you're in a meeting, taking that extra moment to figure out what am I really trying to say here and just say that and then leave it. Speaking of telling a story and getting value, if you guys are getting value out of today's episode, we remind you to please subscribe to the Banana Data Podcast. We have a number of interviews in our past four seasons with a number of guests. And so if you like what you're hearing today, if you like Matt's story, we please ask you to subscribe. Matt, before you go, we want to talk about creating tools that other analysts can use. You want to talk about sort of your development as well as the tools that you utilize to be able to help promote efficiency in real time, different types of tooling that you're using internally for better practices, externally to promote efficiency. We'd love to learn more about your day-to-day practice. Yeah, and I love the tool building. It's so fun to create something that lasts or even gets iterated on, which is another kind of lasting. One of the things that we've been iterating on has been the way that we predict our revenue in real time. We have a kind of complicated attribution model that figures out when someone clicks, what exactly, or or when someone buys, what drove that purchase. Problem is it takes days for our data scientists to calculate that. So one of the things we've been developing has been a way to say in real time, how much money is the channel making right now? Are we spending too much relative to how we're earning? And this had a few iterations. It started as a way to bid more accurately on holidays. And we were just using heuristics in Excel where we'd say, okay, well, usually we make about 15% of the whole store's revenue. So let's just assume we're making that with a few more tweaks. But over a couple iterations, I ended up developing basically a linear regression model and a random forest to figure out more quickly just how much money we're earning. And the tool's not yet done being developed. We're We're using how many percentage points away from our true revenue we're earning as a metric. And right now we're about 200 bips away. So the next step is to pass it off to our data science team so they can turn those two relatively basic models into some storm of excellence to get even closer. Yeah, and I guess this really makes a lot of sense where if you're trying to identify this and you know, you're know you really sure that you can get this answer pretty accurately within a couple of days, well, it's real-time analysis. You need the answer right now. So I feel like this is a pretty good problem to, to solve and, and you know have that minimum viable product to deliver to the data science team. So linear regressions and random forests are definitely speaking to my heart, but I, you know, I, I, I can't tell you that I know what a BIP is. That's way above my pay grade. CPM, you're <laughs> supposed to be the expert here. Oh gosh, I'm, I'm failing my part. Matt, tell us, what's a BIP? A BIP is a percent of a percentage point. So a really small amount, 200 BIPs, not too bad. One of the pitfalls of my job is that there's about 10,000 acronyms that we use. So usually I like to use the technique of maybe use an acronym, say what it means, and then keep going. But I guess I missed that here. I'll catch you next time. See, folks, who said you weren't going to learn something new today? (laughs) (laughs) So as we're talking about, you know, building these models, passing them off to the data scientists, 
how do you ensure that you keep the human in the loop in, in this sort of scenario? You know, it's not just all building models. It's not just all trying to get that BIP change to be as small as possible. How do you keep that human in the loop besides just being all numbers? Yeah, two things really come to mind here. The first is surfacing the data that helps you understand what the conclusion means. So when we're predicting real-time revenue, we don't just show the total estimate of revenue. We also show how real-time conversion and real-time add to carts are changing so that as analysts, we can look at this and construct a story of what's going on. One example of that was on Mother's Day. We saw that our the cost per click, the amount we were paying for ads was skyrocketing. But because we were also showing what sorts of customers were coming to site, we were able to say, oh, well, it looks like a bunch of new customers are coming to site. Those are usually more expensive and they don't end up paying all that much. So we're not going to make changes. We're comfortable with what's happening here. The other example is giving analysts toggles to let them adjust what the model is doing. With our real-time bidding, we have a lot of different levers we can pull so that once we come up with one of those decisions on what's going on, we can make those real-time adjustments and keep us a part of the process to make human plus data science decisions. So you're telling us that we could have pulled the lever to be able to send flowers to our moms on Mother's Day, right? Please do. Wayfair.com. Love that site. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Matt, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. It's been wonderful to learn about you, your role at Wayfair, and your role in the rise of the citizen data scientist. Hopefully that movie will come out sometime in the next year. We look forward to sitting in theaters and watching you perform in it. And then obviously the sequel that's going to come out right after that, SQL folks for uh, who are just joining us now. Awesome. I'm in the trenches every day. This was a joy. Looking forward to seeing it too. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. That's all we've got today in the world of Banana Data. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks. In the meantime, the Banana Data Podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.